0: Please take your Bibles and open them to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, we have the final verses of the letter to the Philippians. The Apostle Paul says in verse 21, greet every saint. In Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. On those words, he ends this letter, a letter that is written to a church that obviously he loves very dearly, but like him finds themselves living in hardship. So you have this personal affection and greetings. He gives them well wishes, and he cares for them. And even the people in Rome that are with him, his fellow servants say, we send greetings. They greet every saint. On what basis do those in Caesar's household who don't know the Philippians greet them? What is the basis for this Christian fellowship? Why does Paul end with this appeal that they desperately need God's grace, the grace of the Lord be with you? I mean, is this to be merely understood as just like, sincerely, yours, Paul? Or is he doing more? Is he challenging them on one final parting note to find unity together and grace from the Lord? I'd suggest to you that that is exactly what he is doing. He is both saying, I'm done. Goodbye, but more than that, he's doing so with theological um, finalization of a letter that's called them to rest in the grace of the Lord and brotherly unity. So I'm going I'm to walk you back through the whole letter of the Philippians in way of finalizing and wrapping up with what I think he's pushing us toward at the end of this letter with verses 21, 22, and 23. So so I'm going to suggest to you that those verses are an expression of the whole theme. The theme of the letter being something like this: that, that they would live out the pattern of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That they would they would walk in such a way that their lifestyle would be formed in such a way that the gospel shows itself evident in their lives. For instance, you need to go back to chapter one and verse twenty-seven, he'll say, Let your manner of life be worthy. That's the idea of fitting. That's appropriate to hand in glove with the gospel. He would say later in chapter three, if you go to, to uh, it verse 20, where he says that we are to have lives as citizens of heaven. Says our citizenship is in heaven, and that's in contrast to the phrase before: their mind is on earthly things, our citizenship is in heaven. So there's this idea that we live like the gospel, that, that our lives need to be fitting with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think in, in essence that's the theme, and then he he teases it out. So let's tease. Okay, chapter three, verse 17. You should be there already if you looked in verse 20 with me. Look in verse 17. He says, brothers, join in doing this. Doing what? Imitating me. He, he doesn't just stop there. He says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So it's not merely that he says, hey, be like me. That's not the point. The point is is we have lived in such a way that the gospel is on display in our lives. We have lived as fits with the gospel And so if you have a hard time seeing how the gospel makes connections to life, you can look at us. But it's not as though Paul's the only one walking according to the gospel. You can find others who walk according to the gospel. Look at them and follow after them if you have any doubts. Now, if you have been tracking with Paul as he gets to chapter 3, he's already given four examples. So when he says, imitate us and join in imitating anyone it's a, he's already built a case for imitation for instance go back to chapter 2 verse 5 have this mind among yourselves whose mindset are they to have whose thinking are they to own have your mind have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus and he begins to exegete the mind and heart of Christ. In other words, you are to imitate Jesus, right? Like, be like Jesus. Look with me in chapter 2, verse 17. Speaking of the example in 317, join in imitating me and be like those. In verse 17 of chapter 2, he says, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, Let me see if I can reread that and actually get it out. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering, upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad. So here's his example. Jesus Christ, what did Jesus Christ do for our faith? He humbled himself, became a man, and was obedient to the point of death for our sakes and in obedience to the Father. We see Paul, he says, I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrificial offering of your faith, and I'm glad. So so we have one of the sub-themes of Philippians of joy. Why is Paul rejoicing? He is being poured out. He's being emptied out like a vessel so that he dies on the altar that produces their faith. So why is he rejoicing? Not because he's dying, but because his dying is producing their, their faith. This is, this is the example you follow. Look in verse 19 of chapter 2, if you're we're just tracking through here. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for, you have, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. So in chapter 4, when he says, follow our example, right? Like like, like there's this this sense of Timothy here. Look down in 2.29. So receive him. Who's the him here? It's not Timothy now. it's, It's Epaphroditus. Remember Epaphroditus almost died serving Paul because the Philippians sent him to minister to Paul? It says, receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Now, he doesn't just say honor Epaphroditus. He says honor all such men. What was so honorable about Epaphroditus? He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So Epaphroditus was serving a gospel minister, and he says honor such men. He almost died to serve others. So are considering the example, the pattern of life of what does it mean to live according to the gospel, Live as fits the gospel. The Apostle Paul doesn't just say, do this, do this, do this, do this. The Apostle Paul says, have the mind of Christ. He did this. Here's how I looked at my life. I was being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrificial altar that strengthened your faith. Be like me. Look at Timothy, who is concerned for others' welfare and not his own. Honor men like Epaphroditus, who almost died to serve others. You start to see a pattern develop, don't you? These men are so committed to the strengthening of others in the faith of Jesus Christ that they are willing to die to see others walk with and closer to Jesus. And then you come to chapter 3, verse 19, and he contrasts. He says, in verse 19, my pages are sticking. There we go. He says, brothers, verse 17, join in imitating me, Keep eyes on those who walk under our example in verse 17 still, verse 18 now. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Because like, follow my example, because there's people who are bad. They're enemies of the cross of Christ. Continuing on. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Maybe we could at least interpret that as their God is their own desires. And their glory is in their shame. And they have their minds set on things of this earth. But our, the Apostle Paul's, Timothy's, Epaphroditus, Christ's, and you. Our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. And we are waiting for our Savior who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. So so he has this contrast here. Then we come to chapter 4, verse 9, as he's wrapping this up. And he says something like this, what you have learned, what you have received, what you've heard and seen in me, do what? Practice these things. Live it out. Do it. He has traced through multiple examples in these men. He's Shown them bad examples. People who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And then he says at the end, do this. Now, then when we come to the end, and we see how these men have poured out their lives, they've risked their life to serve others, to cultivate and strengthen the faith of others. And then he says, we send greetings to you. It's not like, hey. Like, he's willing to die for them. Epaphroditus dies to serve Paul for their sakes. Timothy... He has so much concern for them that he says, no one else is like Timothy. Jesus himself loves people so much so that he dies for them in obedience to his Father, and he says, I love you, and I'm greeting you and sending these wishes your way in the Lord. This is not some merely anecdote that's a performative act of writing the end of a letter. Sincerely, yours always, the Apostle. This is a man who would die for them. Who is dying for them. In the sense of willing to sacrifice and lose all of his own privileges for their sake. This is the pattern he holds to the Philippians and says be of one mind. If you're willing to physically die for someone, you're probably going to be willing to be offended by them before you like burn that relationship. If you're willing to die for someone, You're not going to miss gathering with them on a Sunday morning to watch football. If you're willing to die for someone and they need a few dollars to pay their rent, that's no big deal. This is a church and a Christian gospel-centered community that is deeply devoted to one another. That's why there's such a striking problem in chapter 4, verse 1, when you start to see that division. He says, stand firm in the Lord and get Judea and Tintake to agree. Because it's it's such a clashing sound in the harmonious, sweet unity of the gospel. Like, where did that out-of-tune note come from? Fix it. I don't know if you've ever heard an out-of-tune piano. My wife gives piano lessons, so I have the joy of hearing little kids play on the piano all the time. That is its own privilege. But when the piano is out of tune, it amplifies the joy. It's really nice to have an in-tune instrument. I'm very thankful she doesn't teach the violin. Can you imagine how grating and out of tune disunity is to the people of Christ? Christ. It should be something not tolerated. Deep affection is the norm for those who live in the gospel. Deep unity is the norm for those who live in the gospel. It doesn't mean it's not a battle. It means that that is is where we set our cruise control, and anything off of it needs to be adjusted. Disunity, dislike, disinterest are out of place in the people of God. Deep sacrifice, concern for, prayer for, sacrifice by giving financially too. These should be the norms for God's people. So what is the cost of gospel living? What is at stake? If you're like, okay, I'm in. I will follow Paul's example. What exactly might this cost you? I'm glad you asked. Look with me in chapter 2, verse 8. What did it it cost Jesus? You know the answer to this. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And, of course, it's not only that he died. He died the most miserable, torturous death that they had in the Roman Empire. In chapter 17, we already read this, but Paul is being poured out as a drink offering, indicates he might be dying for the faith. In fact, in chapter 1, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he says, "I, I don't know which one I want. And Paul recognizes that his life is disposable in gospel pursuits. Chapter 2, 29, Epaphroditus nearly died for the faith. In chapter 3, verse 10, he says this: his desire is to become like Jesus in his death so that he might be like him in his resurrection. Now, if, you, if you're following that logic, then, conformity to Christ, a willingness to die for the cause of Christ, is the doorway through which the resurrection is achieved. Jesus says it this way, you must take up your cross. He also says something like, you must die daily. Now, he's talking about sacrifice to, like, self-actualization, personal desires, personal finances, and comfort types of death. But I don't think he's excluding death. Right? Like, like, if you take up your cross, could it be that you actually have to literally die? Yes. And Jesus is actually giving the gospel. Like, that, that's how he frames out Salvation. It's not merely a prayer, it's a soul deep commitment to which you are willing to follow Christ no matter where he leads, even if it leads you into death. Gospel living may cost you your mortal life. I want to be careful there, because you don't, you're, you're not at real risk. Does that make sense? Like, you may die. What have you lost? Okay, clearly we need to strengthen this point. Go to chapter 1, verse 21 with me. This is the whole point of the Philippians letter. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is Okay, so what do you lose if you die in pursuit of gospel ministry? What do you lose? You gain something. Now, I know we don't believe that as a culture. We believe that the good stuff is the stuff we get in this life. And so the threat of death is terrifying because we might lose something. And the Apostle Paul says, no, 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 no. They're, like, for me to live is Christ, so there's good for me to live, Right? But actually, for me, dying is gain. I ask you all, hey, is it a risk to lose? And we're, we're naturally going, yeah. Like, I don't want to die. That's horrible. I don't want to lose life. Paul's like, man, that's the win. Like, that's, that is the place where I get the most. And, and I am held off from gaining if I'm living. But I realize living might be more necessary. Again, look back in chapter one with me. Same text. For to me to live is, is Christ that I is gained. If I live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Continue down, verse 24. To remain in the flesh is necessary on your account. So the Apostle Paul says, I am living out the gospel, and if I live, it's Christ. Here's what this means I serve you. Your faith is strengthened. And so I think I'm going to stay on this earth because I'm doing gospel work and you're getting stronger. But if you ask me what I want, I say, give me heaven. Give me Jesus. I want Christ. I'm going to ask you again, what do you lose if you die and you're Christian living out the gospel? You gain Christ. You lose nothing. That's how the apostle Paul lives. That's the example he sets. That's how we're supposed to live then. So if you follow gospel living, if you walk according to the gospel, if you sacrifice yourself for the cause of Christ, you might literally sacrifice yourself for the cause of Christ. You also risk comfort. Right? Like you might lose the things that are comfortable for you. Chapter 1 verse 29, it's been granted for you, to be granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe, but also suffer for his sake. Chapter 3, verse 10, the Apostle Paul says he wants to know the power of his resurrections and be participating to share in his sufferings. So if you are walking according to the gospel, you might not only die, you might lose your comfort. Great sales pitch so far, right? Like, give me gospel living, right? I might die, and I'm going to lose my comfort. This is why Jesus says a wise person considers the cost. Jesus did not disguise these costs. We do that because we twist the gospel because we want everyone to get it and they don't get the real gospel. The real gospel is Jesus is your king and when he marches you into a place of risk where you might physically die or he marches you into a place of financial risk where you lose your creaturely comforts because you lose your money, That's the king who sent you. You obey. Because you're going to live out the will of your king. Not only do you risk comfort, you risk personal, I'll say personal pride. Maybe I could say pleasing yourself. Like like you no longer are the reason you do what you do. Look with me in chapter 2, verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. His proof of that is Christ. Right? Have the mind of Christ is what he follows on and says. Or in chapter 4, verse 2, when he says, I, I entreat Judia and Syntyche, agree in the Lord. Now, as a parent of highly intelligent lawyers, also known as teenagers, when there's a disagreement in the home, The words that invariably bring grief to one or both disagreeable parties is dad coming down with, I don't care, you both just fix it, and I come down with an answer and say, agree, get over it, hug, kiss, you're done. Some soul fears the violation of justice, I mean like someone has been wronged so deeply, so thoroughly that even Lady Liberty is screaming out in horror. Lady Justice, not Liberty. She might be screaming out in horror too, who knows, but i thinking of Lady Justice. Like, can you imagine if you're Yudia and you're right? And you've been right. And everyone thinks you're wrong, but you're right. And in front of the whole church, Someone's reading this letter, and it's a great letter, talking about the sacrifice of Jesus and Paul's love for everybody and the goodness of Christ. And you get to chapter 4, and Paul says, I entreat Judea, you and you're like, that's me. And he says, and I entreat Syntyche, you. you're like, yeah, here it comes. And he says, agree, and you're like, what? Like, I'm right. And I've just got to surrender and unify And lose. Someone's eating a lot of shame to just agree. Maybe personal finances. We don't know what the disagreement was. But if these are like faithful, mature Christians and they can't figure it out, someone takes it on the chin to get unity. And that's gospel living. Have you been wronged? Have you been hurt? Do you find friction with other Christians? Slide your name in there with a person who's hurt you and finish it out with agree in the Lord. Get over it in a way that pleases Christ. Let it go in a way that pleases Christ. Just take the hit, even if it makes you look bad for the sake of pleasing Christ. Be willing to be injured and not be vindicated in order to please Christ. And the whole church hears that. And now the, the, it's over. I mean, again, it's like a parent saying, hug, kiss, be done. <laughs> and here's Judea. Yud- 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 I'm right. And Tentake is wrong. And no one's going to know that i've got to love her anyway got a whole church now that's gonna hold me accountable for not having a bitter spirit and complaining got a whole church that's gonna hold me accountable for being unified with her and paul wouldn't just leave it there he'd be like with joy right like he was like parents hug Wait, you didn't mean that hug again right like with joy she can't eat these sour grapes sucking on lemons all the day. She's got to be happy, like joyful in Christ over this. There's also a risk to wealth. Paul shamelessly thanks them for giving and says, it's good. You should sacrifice more. Right? That's the essence of how he concludes. And he, he just real purposefully reminds them that they are giving to God. It's a good sacrifice. Verse 14 it was kind of you to share my trouble. Verse 17 this is a sacrifice that bears fruit. All right, so, so what are you risking if you just fully dive into gospel living? No, you could die. You could lose your money. You will certainly be called to lose the pursuit of yourself first, which will cost you your pride. You'll risk comfort. All of these things are on the chopping block. You might lose them all. You might lose, generally speaking, none of them out of the pride you might keep your life. You might have a life filled with comfort. You might have a life filled with financial strength. But even there, Paul says, I need the strength of Christ to give me contentment. Like, it is not spiritually easy to be wealthy. You still need the strength of Christ's grace. So when he ends with and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. All the Philippians are been like, oh man, we need that. Right? Like, I don't know, It doesn't matter if they're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if they're naturally filled with a, a fighting spirit like Udi and Syntyche might be struggling with. It doesn't matter if they naturally love this life. They need the grace of the spirit to strengthen them in their hearts. So what is the mindset of gospel living? that he's calling for. Like, what is the foundation that makes one willing to risk all that? Well, I think it's a recognition, and we already read this, that our citizenship, excuse me, citizenship is in heaven. Right, like, like, my heart, my affections, the things I love most are never at risk. Right? Paul wasn't worried about Epaphroditus dying in the sense that he would lose him forever. But he still would have been sad. He wouldn't have lost Epaphroditus forever. Paul wasn't worried about his own life. For me to live is to have Christ live, and for me to die is to have gain. He only wants his life to be worthy of Christ. So, so that, that ultimate citizenship, that ultimate goal, the ultimate treasure of our heart is something that we set our affections on cannot be taken away. Colossians 1, right? Set your affections on things uh, above. Like that's, that's the theme of the Philippians' mind. And that's, that's the condemnation of people who are enemies. They set their minds on what? Earthly things? But we are citizens of heaven? Or chapter 2 would say it this way, and in, 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 at the end of verse 12, work out your salvation. Right, like we need to pursue the gospel's treasures, not the treasures of this world. Chapter 4, 8 would say, think about things that are true and excellent and worthy of praise. So, so there's this value system that renovates the motives of our heart. If you truly treasure Christ. If you truly treasure the power of the resurrection, chapter 3, verse 10. If you truly treasure the righteousness that, righteousness that Christ alone can give, chapter 3, verse 8. If you truly treasure the people of Christ. If you truly treasure the will of the Father, chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. If you treasure these things, you're never risking them in gospel ministry. Right? like those, those are never lost. The pleasure of the Father, the rewards of heaven, even the strengthening of fellow believers, that's an investment that can never be eroded, taken away, rust, or lost. Ever. So when you spend all of your time working to cultivate whatever it is you're cultivating in life, Right? Whether you're like in school and so you're working hard to have a sharp mind or just not fail, I mean, just like a spectrum there. Whether you're working hard to earn money just to support your family, these things, food on the table, good grades in school, don't matter in heaven. I mean, do you really think in heaven? 20,000 years in, someone's going to be like, sophomore year of high school, grade in math, what was it? And if they do, do you think they would be like, seriously? That's all you had? You got to see? Man, you're horrible. Like, how does that go? No one's going to care in heaven. But God might care and does care that whatever you do, whatever your hand finds you, do with your whole heart for him, that reward, that measures forever. But that's the whole point of this mindset of gospel living is to say there are things that matter. And this is then why Christian unity is the de facto goal of God's people in association with each other. Because almost every time there's disunity, someone treasures this earth more than the life to come. Right? Pride, personal feelings, um, sometimes sin, which means you're not forgiving or granting or seeking forgiveness. Those are earthly things coming in the way of the spiritual value when you hold on to bitterness or anger or hurt rather than granting forgiveness. You're trading, and you're trading the opposite way of a good Christian. Gospel living says, I will leverage the this, this stuff of this life to get eternal stuff. The person who can't forgive is doing the reverse they're, they're giving away the eternal things because of heartache over temporary things. That's dumb. I mean, I get it. I've been hurt, but it's dumb. And I've, I've, I've confessed to the dumbness before, but I mean, I was young, so I'll just point out how bad my brothers are. I was like three. I got, I got like a 25-cent allowance, which is usually just a loose change in my dad's pocket. And believe it or not, I did trade away dimes for nickels because bigger is better. <laughs> my, brothers, my brothers are the ones that convinced me of that financial wisdom. So that's what happens when we don't forgive. That's what happens when we have disunity. That's what happens when we give up. Opportunities to encourage each other just to stay home and watch TV. That's what happens when we refuse to serve one another because serving is expensive. I mean, I'm really not like trying to like slide in work in the nursery moment here, but here it comes. That's why y'all don't like in the working in the nursery. Because when you work in the nursery, you don't get sitting here and, and listen to like 45 minutes of Nehemiah 9. And they're like, man, I'm missing out. No, but there's a real reason that's a challenge, because that is a sacrifice. Just this week, my daughter's like, you know, Dad, I really don't like working in the nursery. I'm like, whoa, like, the world has changed. I never knew the nursery was hard. I'm like, why don't you like like, working in the nursery? She's like, well, I really like worshiping. I'm like, yeah, you're God's people. That's normal. Right, like, it makes sense. So here, God calls his church to serve one another in ways that leverage today's joys for eternal joys. And honestly, we are blind to the fact that nursery is that. I mean, coming early and picking up trash on the campus, like our deacons often do, is that. Getting up early to pray for your church family is that. Not, not fighting with someone because they offended you over some little slight that they probably didn't even know they did is that. And not only does the Christian have this bedrock commitment to value heaven, they have a commitment to do it with joy. Joy. Like, like, joy is used throughout this letter. I mean, think about how Paul says this. I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrificial altar of your faith, and I am glad. And then he says, and you should be glad with me. Like, I mean, Paul probably needs a little bit of his own medicine. He talks about the sorrow of Epaphroditus almost dying, right? Because he could read it this way, like Epaphroditus is being poured out like a drink offering, and he was glad, and I should have been glad. But no one wants to see a friend die. No one wants to see the Apostle Paul die. But he looks at this and says, if we could just step back and see perspective. Someone dying like Jesus for the sake of the body and bride of Christ is something with which we all ought to be glad. We send missionaries overseas. We we, we financially support them to sacrifice deeply for the cause of Christ. And often we look at that and we, we have a sense of sadness. They've lost something. Listen, they've lost nothing. We should be glad for their sacrifice. What a joy to partner with men and women, that sacrifice like that. We had to encourage that joy. It's no surprise that the Apostle Paul says, for instance, in 117, that his affliction in jail is leading him to joy. He says, what then should we do? That in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that, I rejoice. Or chapter three, verse one, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter four, verse four, rejoice in the Lord, always. And again, I say, rejoice. The Christian responds to that leveraging of this life for eternal gains as pure joy when he can see what God is doing. That is that in the Lord, these things are treasures to be given away. Firmly resolved to hold on to Christ is the other attitude that the Philippians are to have, right? Hold fast to the word of life, chapter 2 says. He says, I count everything as lost, chapter 3, verse 8, for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Hold to Christ. like Rejoice in the opportunity to sacrifice for him and hold on because sorrowing suffering, hurt, and loss will often cause us to lose our hold on Christ. I mean, there are relationships that are probably not in your life now either because people annoyed you or you annoyed them. People are obnoxious. They say stupid things. They hurt you. They sin against you. And you do it to them. And there are relationships you have in your life that have dissolved because of those things. Sometimes following Christ costs you something. It's risk to finances and comfort and life. And that risk causes us to let go of Christ and hold to those things. So don't hold fast to Christ. That's the no to the Philippian attitude. Firm resolve to hold to Christ. Peace when doing right regardless of circumstances. How he ends, right? The peace which surpasses knowledge will guard your hearts and minds. Chapter 4, verse 9, the God of peace will be with you. Think about the things that fill you with anxiety. It's usually things. Right? It's where's the rent going to come from? What's going to happen to my work? I think, you know, we're being bought out by a larger company. I might lose my job. It's the worries of this life that that own our souls. And our minds are filled with anxieties. We treasure heaven, trust the king of heaven, and he guards our hearts and minds. We live in peace. So he calls the Philippians to live in peace. And he says, I have learned whatever state I am to be content because I can do all things through Christ. I don't know what's got you staying awake at night, but I know the supernatural power of Christ can give you peace in it. Finally, the last attitude that you have is kind of this gospel living heart is the just absolute dependence on the relentless grace of God. God's relentless grace empowers this. So I end in all that I'm like, okay, think about this. Who could do this? Right? Like, like look at gospel living, and it's okay, I've got to be like Jesus. Or Paul, okay. So like there's Jesus, then there's Paul, and then there's the rest of us. Like, how do you live by Paul's example or Jesus' example? How do I live up to this? How do I have joy? Because life, life hurts and it's hard. How do I have joy in that? How do I have contentment? How do I do this? How do I have unity with people that are horrible? How do I do that? And the answer is, final words of the verse, excuse me, final words of the letter. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you do this. Think how he starts. Grace and peace be with you. Verse two. Then he says something like this in verse six. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. See how confident he is this is gonna happen? You will be someone who lives out the gospel because I know the one who's doing it in you. He says it again in chapter, it's one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Work out your salvation, for it is God who works in you. Man, that's so relieving. This is not extreme makeover you, you variety right? Like, you don't do this. This is extreme makeover with the grace and the power of Christ. Chapter 4, verse 8. We think about these things, but it's the God of peace who's with us. That's not like merely, he's the buddy who stands with us and doesn't help us. It's that he's there to guard us, defend us, and strengthen our minds and hearts. Chapter 4, verse 13, the verse that's overused everywhere else but here. I can do all things through and what does he do? What does he do to you? He gives you strength. God has not called you to live according to the gospel pattern of Christ and left you powerless. He has given you massive power that dwarfs the biggest, baddest truck ever made. Like, like you, know, you ever watch those truck commercials? It's like, this truck. Most powerful truck ever known to man. It's like really, come on, Ford. It's an electric truck. Stop it. And then we read a verse like this, and we think, "I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me." And we don't actually think He's calling us to anything that requires the strength. Like, I mean, it is funny to see Bakersfield. It's like you drive in a city that sees like a quarter inch of rain and has no mud anywhere, and you're driving this truck. I mean, capital T-R-U-C-K truck. It's like, it has never needed four-wheel drive a day in its life. God is not giving you a spiritual powerhouse through Christ for you to sit in a Christian driveway never pressing to move to be like Christ. You're driving through the muckiest muck of this world with a Weak heart and weak muscles and you need Christ for all your worth to get this done. And he's there. Right? Like This is not like, hey, maybe. It's like every Christian has a strength of Christ to live according to the gospel because it's not easy. If your Christian life is easy, it's because you're not using Christ. He calls us to have joy when life hurts to love people who cause the hurt. And that takes an amazing work of Christ's grace. We don't lower the standard and be like, yeah, people are horrible. You should just find a different church. No, I said, like, get over it in Christ. Agree in Christ, and he will strengthen you to be content in the middle of hurt. We don't lower the standard of moderate, mediocre, lame Christian living. We call people to scale the heights of total depravity through the strength of the indwelling spirit as he mediates the grace of Christ. If your Christian life is easy, if you're coasting, you need to fix it. Get after it. And so he ends and says, may the grace of Christ Jesus be with your spirits. He didn't even say amen. Period. Let us follow the example of Jesus and Paul and Epaphroditus and Timothy. They risked so much of this life so that they could be filled with the glories of heaven in the life to come. Stop wasting the life to come by holding to the things of this life. Ask yourself seriously, Lord, what needs to die? How do I need a sacrifice to help those around me get closer to Christ and be more like him? How am I holding people back from seeing Christ in my behavior? Work hard, At being like Christ, by his grace, for his glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this powerful letter that just breaks down our confidence that we're doing well by showing us the glories of Christ, by reminding us of the sweetness of heaven. By challenging our loves and telling us to love heaven and Christ more than anything in this life. By telling us that it is in your good gifts that you have not only given us faith but suffering so that we can be like Jesus. Father, we pray for the grace to be like him. Give us eyes that we might see clearly where we need to submit to his leadership and follow after him. Father, if in relationships we've been proud and selfish, would you forgive us and lead us to repentance and give us strength to walk in sacrifice? Treating others as more important than ourselves. Father, if we have held too tightly to our money, to our pride, to our time, to our families, and we have neglected the people of Christ, would you forgive us? Would you help us to pursue one another that we might promote in others a Christ-likeness? Father, would you give us humble hearts that would hold out all that we have in this life as sacrifice to you, that we might echo the words of the Apostle Paul, we are being poured out like a drink offering on the altar of another's faith, and we are glad and rejoice in it. We pray that you might do these things, Father, because that is a supernatural attitude only brought about by the grace of Christ. So we ask for that grace that we might have the heart of Christ, that we might live in such a way that he is honored and that there is glory for you forever and ever, Father. In the name of Jesus, we ask, amen.